to step yeah. back from Rogan mm -hmm. and to offer like I don't want a, a sort of charitable view, right? The left is very used to being essentially irrelevant to American politics. They're used to being on the fringe, where then it actually makes some sense. And um, and Ben Burgess actually made this point to me. I want to give him credit for this. Like it actually makes some sense when you're on the fringe, when you have no relevance and potential to claim any power, to have these sort of like moral fights. What are we really about? What are the real litmus tests about? And um, and so we've continued to operate in that framework of assuming that we're completely irrelevant to power, even as that's not really true anymore. I mean, you have some representatives in Congress who have left-wing views. You have Bernie Sanders come pretty damn close to being president of the United States. So they're in the wake of Bernie's defeat, there's been this total splintering, and it's just devolved back to all of these like purity tests and infighting and everybody trying to demonstrate that they're the pure lefty, that they're the one who's espousing it, that they're not associating with any of those bad people. And it's really counterproductive if you actually want to grow a movement and move things forward. All right. Our name is Ben Burgess. This is Give Them an Argument. I am joined uh, by uh, producer Kale Brooks uh, and producer YouTube editor uh, Kelly Carey. Uh, and the voice you just heard uh, was Crystal Ball uh, talking about a little bit of what I talk about in the uh, new book, uh, Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, a critique of the contemporary left. Uh, which is available everywhere that uh, books are sold. Although if you want to support a worker-owned bookstore, that's uh, redemmas.org. Uh, uh, but of course, that's about the critique part. Uh, the other thing that uh, Crystal mentions in that clip is that there have been some, uh, some real advances. Uh, we're going to be talking about one of those a little bit later, the victory of India Walton in, uh, in Buffalo, which is... Uh, Amazing, actually. It's, it's the uh, it's the first time a, a self-declared socialist has been the mayor of a major city in the United States or will be mayor of a major city in the United States since 1960. Uh, and all of that obviously uh, puts, um, you know, um, makes some people uh, very afraid. Uh, Byron Brown, the current mayor of Buffalo, uh, has been going on today about how uh Everybody needs to still vote for him, even though he lost the, uh, the Democratic primary in the write-in uh, as a write-in candidate in the uh, uh, the general election, because otherwise you're going to have a radical socialist uh, who is going to uh, to be mayor of Buffalo, and I don't know, you'll have everything will be on fire, and there'll be cats and dogs living together, and there'll be pandemonium. Uh, and so I, I wanted to get in. I know this is a little bit of a mean thing to do to uh, to to Kale and Kelly. Uh, to to make them watch this, but uh, but I, I wanted to get into like the really good stuff as far as the, the you know the reasons that have been given why uh, democratic socialism is a bad and, and terrible thing. You, know, you want to go to uh, the, the just the highest level source of this, which is of course uh, Prager University. They're really good, and you should check them out. You should like and subscribe their channel. <laughs> um, <laughs> So we're going to, I'm going to pull up. a couple up. days, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Find uh, out all about it. Yeah. All right. So I guess we'll jump right into it. Uh, and then we'll just do a little starting and stopping at all of our favorite moments. So let's do it. Like and fave. In the contemporary world, it's taken as a given 
that capitalism, with its free market and profit motive, is based on selfishness and produces selfishness. Well, True. Well, yeah, socialism is based on selflessness and produces selflessness. All right, hit like and subscribe. They got it. The <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. end. <laughs> well, the opposite is true. Well, wait, Whatever wait, wait, its wait, intention. Wait, wait, wait. The, the opposite is true? What? It's not no. that. It's the, actually the opposite of that. I, I might have to uh, revoke my hit, like, and subscribe. But, um, okay. Yeah, now I'm really confused. I want to know I want to know where this is going. Yeah, we got a little, uh, we got a little production setting right now. This is the scene. Socialism produces far more selfish individuals and a far more selfish society than a free market economy does. And once this widespread selfishness catches on, it is almost impossible to undo it. Here's an illustration. In 2010, the United States President, Barack Obama, addressed a large audience of college students. At one point in his speech, he announced that young people will now be able to remain on their parents' health insurance plan until age 26. I don't ever recall hearing a louder, more thunderous, or more sustained applause than I did then. It's the historic world record, actually, just <laughs> so you guys know. Because the most people have ever applauded for anything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's amazing. Um, all right. So, but that sounds like a good thing uh, that uh, people can have health insurance for another year. So, uh, I, I'm guessing we're about to find out this is a bad thing. Uh, kind of. Oh. Okay. Had the president announced that a cure for cancer had been discovered? It is highly doubtful that the applause would have been as loud or as long. Yeah, pause it there, Kale. Yeah. <laughs> so it just struck me there that more than that one person would have had cancer in the audience. So just statistically, so like, I mean, at least more than that one person would have cheered. At least like maybe possibly 70% of the audience would have at least known someone with cancer. Probably more. Yeah, and, and I mean, like he said, they're cheering as if it would cure for cancer. And of course, uh, like people being on health, like having health insurance for a year when they wouldn't, will literally stop some people from dying of cancer. Like, well, true, case, but all these people are just selfish, right? So we, these are the selfish people. And so if they're purely selfish, then only selfish reasoned people would cheer. So... If they were only selfish, only the people with cancer or who knew someone with cancer would cheer. And I'm still saying that it would almost be everyone in the crowd. Yeah. Well, also the, the, yeah. the spoiler, I'm spoiling a little bit of it, but of course, as they've already no, set up, yeah. it's, <laughs> well, no, but they're saying that like those people that uh, are infected with socialism uh, become selfish. And uh, this presumes that, you know, in, uh, you know, at the beginning of Obama's term, when he was announcing uh, that, uh, you know, young adults could stay on their parents' plans, that we are therefore living in socialism? Oh, the, they like, were infected as soon as he got elected. Oh, F. Okay. Right. Yeah, they, got, they, got, they became selfish uh, once Obama started doing the socialism. Uh, I, I want to, <laughs> like... Uh, you know, as we all remember what happened, you know, when Obama was president. Uh, yeah, which and, 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 and like, reigned. 
you know, I do want to say, like, anybody who is, you know, like, really, like, one of the big consequences of, of not having <clears throat> health insurance is that, um, is that you're way, way less likely to go to a, go to the doctor, uh, you know, which, which means that if you have, like, you know, something that could be nothing and could be cancer, like people do, uh, and you know you're you know, you're like a lot more likely to roll the dice because like you know even if it's you know if it's no big deal which it probably is but maybe it's a medium deal and one way or the other you know you don't have the money and you know it's probably fine right so so you so you won't do it so I mean I, I know this is an obvious point I'm harping on but like um, also people die of lots of stuff besides cancer but yeah. anyway yeah I just the how does anyone watch this and take him seriously after he says that it's highly doubtful that only one person in the audience would cheer for the, like that we have a cure for cancer. It's just, it's just such a dumb phrase, just like really moronic. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think people you were around for the past four years, right? Are you still yeah. alive right now? Where are you? Is it, what year is it, Kale? Uh, I'm living are. in a very blissful 2009 right now. Oh my God, is it socialism? <laughs> yeah, that's that's oh, why that's, I, that's why I yeah, produce YouTube videos. When Obama got elected, I was in Times Square, and what happened was, I walked outside of where I was. He was elected. Everything was free, and mm -hmm. I just went around and did like wherever I wanted, and I got just all free stuff. And I went home, and I was like called my landlord and I was like, no rent, right? And he was like, that's right. And, you know, I was like, that's awesome, man. Let's party. And I partied with my former landlord, then current best friend mm -hmm. um, for the next eight years. And uh, then he had to go back to being in the mob mm -hmm. after that. This but sounds... This sounds kind of like the conservatives' vision of the world, though, where it's like the tenants and the landlords are just like best friends, but they maintain the same social relations between each other. Like, <laughs> there's no conflict between them. They just, yeah, I'll, you know, very happily give you my rent money every month. Uh, or, uh, I mean, obviously, in the in your scenario, you weren't paying rent, but but like that, like just the end of of class uh, antagonism, uh, but maintaining the class relations is like. That's basically what conservatives want. Well, no, we had we had a neighborhood. We had, we had a club hangout. I can't even. It's too. It's because it's real. I can't <laughs> tell you. It's really funny. Never mind. But um, let's, let's watch a little more of the. Uh, yeah. Sorry, of, Ben. Of, let's get to the. Sorry, Ben. It's a serious show, Kale. Stop uh, it. Yeah, come on. That's the like. Dennis Prager has a serious critique to make of the social. He's a dangerous revolution. man. Obama did in 2009 and how it shows that socialism is all about selfishness. So let's, let's take it seriously. Let's watch it. Fair. Loud or as long. But what were they so happy about? To be told that you can now remain dependent on your parents until age 26 should strike a young person as demeaning, not liberating. I mean, that's sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's like why our system fucking sucks. But yeah, right. I mean, of, of course, uh, like the big point here is that uh, like socialists uh, do not typically think that uh, that Obama extending like the time that you can be on your parents' health insurance to the age of 26 
is everything that we should want out of a healthcare system. Uh, they, they, you know, want uh, Medicare for all, you know, that, uh, that the, that everybody uh, be given health insurance, you know, by the state, no strings attached, uh, which would actually uh, cut those, uh, those strings time people to, uh, to their parents because they wouldn't rely on them for health, for health insurance anymore. The same way that well, if tying you, it to, to labor period. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, that too, right? That you're not dependent. I mean, there's a, there's a book by uh, Aru Partanen, I think is her name, who's a uh, Finnish uh, journalist who moved to the, like she married America, moved to the United States. It's called The Nordic Way of Everything. And she talks about how when she got to the, uh, you know, like started living in the United States, you know, she started noticing all this stuff about relationships between parents and children and husbands and wives and bosses and workers that seemed like pre-modern to her. Because she she came out of a society where uh, stuff like healthcare and educate you know higher education uh, was was free, so uh, so you didn't have to you know people didn't have to rely on on their parents to to pay their college tuition, uh, so so they weren't like you know worried about that you know those bills being cut off all the time. People didn't stay mm-hmm. in bad marriages because they were worried about losing you know losing health insurance. Uh, you know, people didn't stay in, you know, jobs with bosses they hated quite as much, you know, et cetera. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, if, if you want to be, um, you know, if you want to be not reliant on your parents, uh, this, this seems like, uh, you know, like, like, yeah, social democracy and, you know, socialism uh, would seem to be for you. Well, that's not what this video says. So <laughs> let's, let's learn the truth. Yeah. <laughs> Throughout American history, and for that matter, all of Western history, the great goal of young people was to become a mature adult, beginning with being independent of mom and dad. Agreed. But again, this is a very weird outcome we're about to get, or like a solution to to get there. Socialism and the welfare state destroy this aspiration. In various European countries, and now increasingly in the U.S., It is becoming common for young people to live with their parents well into their 30s and not infrequently beyond. Ah, wrong. (laughs) We have have evidence that that's not true, that uh, this is actually, Bhaskar showed this uh, not too long ago, but that uh, when you actually look at the share of young people aged 25 to 34 still living with their parents, the lowest percentages are in the classic Nordic countries. So Sweden, Norway, Finland, and Denmark. Uh, and, you know, in, in countries like France, Iceland are doing all right. It's all the countries that got like IMF shock therapy in like the Baltics that are, you know, are really screwed. Uh, and shock therapy is just like, like neoliberalism on steroids, just like price liberalization everywhere, privatization, cutting of the welfare state. Like, it's just so like the actual history is that when you cut the welfare state, people end up. Uh, you know, in in much more dire yeah, economic situations. If you if you're economically precarious, you don't have you don't have health insurance. You know, you're you're not uh, like uh, you know it's it's like you have way less job stability, etc. Yeah, no kidding. Like you know, you're a lot more likely to have to uh, uh, to live with your uh, with your parents. Which, by the way, I love Bosco's tweet about this. He said uh, that um, you know Jordan Peterson. Uh, to uh, to to young adults, stop whining and clean your room. Democratic socialist to young adults. How about a how about an apartment of your own and some health care? We're gonna win. Yeah, hell yeah. Uh, 
I've seen some pretty different numbers um, just from the past uh, year and a half because of COVID. Yeah, of course. With with some permanency attached to them because not permanency, permanency, but like gave up their separate home and moved in with their parents. But I mean, I don't know um, no, how long that type of shift yeah. will. Um, and I'm talking about in this country. I'm not yeah, sure totally. how, how long that will last. But I mean. That lots doesn't of just lost jobs because of COVID, you know, lots of, uh, lots of people are, you know, we're working, uh, we're working remotely and, and this is, and like, it made sense to save money, you know, by moving back in, you know, like, I think, I mean, even just anecdotally, you know, but like, you, like you have to, you have to think about where, where they're, they're, where certain things are failing as well. Like you, you it's not just that, things are failing on the younger people's end, you know, you, you, things are failing on the, the, the parents or the, or the older relatives and, and people are choosing to be like, okay, well, if we combine resources, then it just makes a lot more sense that, you know, it doesn't make any sense to put anyone in a home, but if we all live together, then, then we can, make the resources work just like it works in like tons of other societies, you know, um, not that we're going to have that in America, but, um, it just wasn't the way that we thought we thought in America, it's always been like self-sufficiency. Like everyone has to have like completely separate dwellings in order to be successful. So says this guy. Right. Uh, let's uh, let's finish up the the video and then then we'll we'll finish talking about it. Sounds good. And why not? In the welfare state, taking care of yourself is no longer a virtue. Why? Because the government will take care of you. Therefore, socialism enables and as a result produces people whose preoccupations become more and more self-centered. How many benefits will I receive from the government? A lot. The government pay for my education. Yes. Will the government pay for my health care? Yes. What is the youngest age at which I can retire? Really young. How much paid vacation time can I get? A lot. How many days can I call in sick and still get paid? All of them. How many weeks of paid paternity or maternity leave am I entitled to? As much as you need. In fact, just have another child. Keep going. The list gets longer with every election of a liberal or progressive or left-wing party. And then each entitlement becomes a right. That's why it's called an entitlement. There are even more destructive (laughs) effects of socialism. Entitlements create citizens who lack a character trait that every human should have, gratitude. You cannot be happy if you are not grateful, and you cannot be a good person if you're not grateful. That's why we constantly tell our children, say thank you. But socialism undoes that. After all, why would a person be grateful for receiving an entitlement? Who's going to be grateful for getting what they're entitled to? So instead of thank you, the citizen of the welfare state is taught to say, what more am I entitled to? Yet the left insists that it's capitalism and the free market, not socialism, 
that produces selfish people. But the truth is that capitalism and the free market produce much less selfish people. Teaching people to work hard and take care of themselves and others, and that they should earn what they receive, produces less selfish, not more selfish people. Capitalism teaches people to work more. Socialism teaches people to demand more. Yeah, completely. I mean, that's the thing, but it's like people have to work more literally because if they don't, they will starve and die because there is a compulsion because we all exist on markets in every aspect of our lives. So, yeah, we all have to work really fucking hard. And, and who likes that? Sirs, may I make a couple of comments? Mm -hmm. Number one, they literally had to make everyone in this video blue in order for it not to be just like outrageously obvious that everyone in this whole video had to be white except for Obama, okay? Because like you are ignoring like entire swaths of the country and you're only talking about this country, I think, the, it, it, for any of this stuff to make sense, right? I mean, you're just leaving out just, I mean, capitalism leaves entire economic, entire sectors of people out, entire, like, you know, communities of people out, entire, that's the entire, that's the whole problem, which leads to all the problems that we have and, you know, you know, in various ways. Well, these are and, the blue people who were told uh, their lives matter, but um, perhaps, perhaps they don't in capitalism, yeah, according cops. to Prager. Those were oh, cops. Oh, oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. The, the blue lives are, 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 are cops. They're not literally blue people. Oh, they're, they're literally blue. Okay. Goodness. Okay. Yeah. No, no, but I, no I had another point, which is that no. Dennis Prager has obviously had Botox in his forehead. I'm going to leave that there because like, I'm sorry, look at the rest of his face, but look at his forehead. I don't yeah, know. That man's That's 150 years old. He's looking great. Doesn't either here nor there, but like the rest of his face is like, it is melting off of his face. But like his forehead is smooth as a baby's bottom. This has nothing to do with anything. I'm just saying. No, no, it is it, like now that you've said it, I can't unsee it. But yeah. I know. That's what I was saying. <laughs> it's either he got really like, like obsessed with like forehead Botox or he, it melted downwards and it just, that's, it's really, he's a really good example of gravity and he should switch up what his university is about, which it should be about gravity. Right. It's just a, a more enlightened figure. That's all. Just <laughs> nice smooth brain. <laughs> <laughs> which attitude do you I think snorted. will make a better society? Socialism. I'm Dennis Prager. All uh, right, fun shit. Yeah, so so I, I guess a, a few um, a few thoughts. One is that uh, you know that he's equated socialism and welfare state, which are uh, really good things, but not the same thing, right? I mean, welfare states have been built by you know socialist parties and working class movements, and you know, and and they're very very good things. And it's certainly true that part of what, like you know, Eric Old Wright says, you know, like the two big you know, sort of things motivating socialists or, you know, trying to uh, socially empower everybody and make sure everybody's basic needs are met. 
and you know welfare states do the the second one you know partially uh but also uh you know with welfare states and this goes back to what we were talking about last time he's he's conflating um you know stuff like obamacare that's uh that's means tested and and you know has all these limits and yeah you can stay on your parents health insurance until 26 you know at at, at 27 you're still shit out of luck uh with um the sort of sweeping actual you know entitlements uh to uh to to healthcare and education and all the rest uh that uh that socialists uh, that socialists want uh but also yeah uh you shouldn't actually have to be grateful to anybody for being allowed to to uh, to see a doctor when you get sick, or uh, or to a um, you know to go to uh, uh, or to be able to to go to school and not have to drop out you know because you can't afford it, uh, or uh, or for that matter to uh, to have a voice to vote on the job. I mean those 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 all seem like things that you should get for being people, and uh, I I don't you know I mean I'm, and by the way I don't particularly think the great advantage of socialism is that we'll all be like better people, and you know less selfish and and, and whatever. If anything, I think that the reason that we have to uh, get rid of capitalism is that the amount of power that workers have, you know, that like bosses have over workers and, you know, and, and different, you know, segments of society have over others under capitalism is way too much power for anybody to be trusted with, given that, you know, that we're all very flawed uh, people. But I guess my big thing is I don't, I don't understand who, what, like this thing has a zillion, a zillion views. Uh, this, I should say it came to my attention because there's a, YouTuber uh, called stuff Lucky Black Cat who who did a thing about it, which is very long, but all uh, not very long, but certainly too long to play here. I'll I'll link to it in the description. But like, I want to know who watches this and thinks, man, that sounds terrible to me. That I, you know, that I would be like, I would get all these days off, and you know, and and I get I get you know maternity or paternity leave and health care and you know none of that, please. Well, I think that. Um, Kale should answer this because he's the oldest. Um, I mean, well, I mean, my first thing is like part of it is that Prager is trying to make the case that the the social structure, basically, whether it be capitalism or socialism, that it largely shapes people's attitudes and their dispositions, and um, and that's true. But he, of course, like smuggled into that is, of course, like his notion of human nature is still that everyone is extremely uh, selfish and only looks out for themselves um, uh, ex ante, even before you enter into an economic system. So that where an economic system exists where people's needs are met and where uh, things are run more cooperatively, people necessarily will find a way to break and destroy it because they won't say thank you or something. Um, but obviously that's just not true. I mean, we, we know just, as being like human beings that interact with other human beings that like a massive part of living is having uh, social relations with others, with having friendships, with having, um, we depend on other people. We can't get by solely on ourselves. And so fundamental to human nature is this, you know, sure on the one hand, we're not all saints, we're not all hyper altruistic, but we also do care about one another and we do need one another. Uh, and, and so having social institutions and structures that foster those qualities that do make us more communal would 
presumably end up uh, enhancing those qualities of human nature and uh, and tamper some of the more uh, selfish aspects. We also, we have like research on this. Like there are scientists who study, uh, you know, uh, who have done studies on like, you know, uh, basically they look at um, uh, where they exist or where they have existed um, in the, you know, in the modern era, um, non-capitalist, uh, more, what's you know term like primitive societies and and they'll look at how people relate to one another and they do tend to be more communal that like so much of of how we end up um uh selfish is truly just capitalism that like yeah, we are a cooperative species yeah of course it only makes sense i mean you you expend more energy i mean it's just a, like it's like a law of physics you're going to expend more energy doing the same task for separately for 12 different people than if you did it for, for you know as one for 12 people it, you're, you're just gonna i don't know but um yeah i mean if you have i mean if you throw like if you're throwing like a uh, a few scraps and making everybody fight over it you know like that uh then uh then obviously you know, you're going to get more vicious behavior than you would if, if everybody is, is well fed. And that doesn't mean that everybody's going to be awesome. And, you know, you're not going to have all sorts of selfish and horrible behavior under any system, you know, cause, cause people are flawed, but I mean, like, you know, certainly making people try to survive in these conditions and compete against each other for everything is not going to bring out the best in anyone. Well, and, you know, I mean, I'm not the scholar on this, Ben is, but um, I mean, no offense, Kyle. Yeah, maybe you are, then I don't know about it. No, but, just Ben. Okay, it's just Ben. So, but, you know, some people just it, are not going to get used to getting this competitive over things. Like some people just aren't going, like the system isn't going to, to you know, to, to, chew them up and spit out a, a hyper competitive person. Um, you know, even if like you get with the program for a certain number of years, like in, I mean, and you just kind of don't turn out that way. Like it just doesn't, you, you're, you try to like fit that mold and it just doesn't really, cause you weren't that way in the beginning. Um, you know, I mean, capitalism doesn't really, um, if you were a more like cooperative type of, of person, um, if you, I mean, you can't make yourself a more, I mean, I guess you, if you're not that aggressive to begin with, you can't like necessarily make yourself more aggressive by the end of things, um, and more competitive and more, um, selfish, just because um, of capitalism. Well, there's I mean, a ton of people who can't keep up and that's, and then the elites tell us, you know, well, it's their fault because they're slackers because they want to mooch off the welfare state or something. But we should, in the same way that we say, you know, children shouldn't have to work, people, you know, way later in their life shouldn't have to work, disabled people, you know, should have, uh, you know, maybe they shouldn't be working as hard as someone who's highly disabled, for instance. Uh, people who, you know, are just naturally not going to be able to keep up with the pace of like capitalist productivity increases 
maybe that's actually something that we should, you know, consider uh, something that we take care of as a society and say that, you know, broadly people should be working as hard, but, you know, these people are human beings that need to be taken care of and looked after as well. And we just have a much more expansive notion of, uh, of like what it means to take care of someone else in society. I mean, I think that, yeah, it, 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 the, the, the phrase, um, you know, looked after comes up a lot when we talk about these things and it, 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 it bothers me because it can mean a lot of different things. And some people can't, some people in like the structure, in, in like the, the society that we live in right now, can't look after people in ways that we think of as looking after people, but could in, if society were structured in another way, look after people in ways that people need to be looked after. Like, in profound ways, you know? I mean, we don't put a whole lot of um, importance on like emotional, like certain like emotional daily well-being check-ins and stuff like that. We just don't, we don't like it, it there, it's meaningless to us. But in reality, it's not because then when people snap, it's like, oh, we like do this like, you know, we, we do like an audit of like what happened and it's like, well, a lot of things, um, yeah. a lot of things happen. Yeah, no, I, I think that's very well said. Uh, so, um, so yep, uh, this is, uh, I, I guess I, I have to say after this, after this entire discussion, uh, I, I actually, I just don't think I'm going to like and subscribe to, to Breaker University. Uh, I, I, I think, I think Kelly and Kale made some good points, and and I don't, I don't know that I'd, I'd actually support the uh, the work. Kale and I are going to get degrees from that university. Yeah, I'm kind of more on the fence now, Ben, but we can we can go on to the the next all thing. Right, all right. Fair <laughs> enough. Uh, thank you so much, Kelly. I'm at least getting I'm at least getting like the Botox. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure that they have. I, I I would imagine that when you register enroll at uh, at Prager University, everybody gets the four hundred beforehand. Botox just to start. But. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks, Kelly. Bye, guys. Bye. All right. Uh, so uh, before uh, we uh, bring on uh, Connor and Ryan from uh, Buffalo uh, DSA, I uh, do want to uh, play just a couple of minutes of uh, my uh, conversation over the weekend uh, with uh, Glenn Greenwald. Uh, we're going to be replaying that on the um, uh, our channel. I mean, you know, if you want, you can go on and find that or the full thing right now, but we're going to be replaying that on our channel in full on Wednesday, but let's just watch a quick teaser now and then we'll bring on uh, Ryan and Connor. You know, you would probably need just one hand to count the number of people who you could identify as prominent left-wing voices, say in Congress, um, let alone like the institutional left. And I think a lot of people, especially people who aren't on the left, you know, it's like this weird phenomenon I've noticed. It's not at all unique to the left, which is that every political faction always believes that they're always on the losing side of things. Everyone always believes that their faction is losing everything, that they have no power, that they're always oppressed, right? It's almost maybe something tribal that is in us. But I think when you look at the left, 
you know, when you look at obvious things like the number of elected members of Congress who would say, like, identify openly with the Democratic Socialists of America, what are there, like, maybe eight to ten of them, as opposed to one or zero before the fact that the Bernie movement in 2016 almost took down the Clinton machine and probably would have had the DNC not cheated and came very close again in 2020 had Obama not, you know, done his magic. Um, but on top of that, you know, success in local races, success in state races, and just like a very kind of uh, influential presence in the culture wars as well. I mean, I think, you know, you would have to say that when it comes to the culture wars, the left seems to be winning on marriage equality, trans issues and abortion and those kind of things. What, what's your argument for why the left isn't succeeding? Yeah, so I, I guess I want to disaggregate a couple of things like the, uh, I mean, I think that some of those social issues that you mentioned, there has been, uh, been tons of, of progress on them, uh, partially because I think, you know, the culture war uh, moves on, you know, uh, the, you know, the, the line of scrimmage changes, um, you know, I, there was, I saw there's a poll, the other, you know, like a within the last week or two, in fact, I think I saw you post it. Uh, that like 55% of Republicans, you know, are fine with same-sex marriage now. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, so so I think that uh, I think that sometimes as some of the social and cultural battles are, um, you know, are lost, uh, you know, by by social conservatives, you know, they'll they'll move on to uh, uh, to new things, and those certainly are. I mean, both of those examples. I mean, those those certainly are, you know, welcome bits of. Uh, of social progress uh, from uh, from my perspective, although I think it's also worth noting that uh, those aren't advances that particularly threaten uh, the the bottom line of the most powerful uh, people in uh, in our society, right? I mean, like like whether um, you know whether like uh, which is not to say that they're inconsequential or I don't care about them. I do, but it's uh, but it's it's just not the case. That you know, um, that you know whether Goldman Sachs you know has uh, is going to have you know black gay trans people in certain positions or not you know that they're, they're going to make just as much money uh, one way or the other you know that that doesn't really uh, that doesn't really impact them. In fact, if anything, you know, in some ways, uh, I know that on the left we sometimes really want it to be the case that all the things that we don't like are marching in the same direction so uh, so we can have a kind of unambiguous moral judgment. Uh, but uh, but in some ways, it's actually good for, for capital to uh, to get past certain kinds of arbitrary prejudices uh, because, you know, that way, you know, you can just work as an efficient machine, you know, best person for the job, you know, without, uh, without worrying too much about stuff like that. All right. Uh, so... Uh, Again, just a little taste. Uh, we're going to replay the whole thing on uh, Wednesday. But uh, right now, I want to bring on uh, Connor and Ryan uh, from uh, Buffalo uh, DSA uh, because because uh, I'm I'm very very excited about this. Uh, what's uh, what's what's been uh, what's been going on there? Uh, the the victory of um, you know India Walton uh, in the uh, in the Democratic primary looks like she's going to become the uh, the first uh, socialist. Uh, who's been the uh, going to be the major mayor of a of a major city uh, since uh, 1960? Uh, like to put this in perspective, you know when Bernie was mayor of Burlington, that's a city of 
you know, 40,000 people. Uh, so, uh, so this is a, this is a big, big deal. So uh, thanks guys. Pleasure. Thanks. Yeah. Bless your beer. Yeah, so uh, so I want to um, I want to hear just a little bit. You know, we've only got a few minutes, but I want to hear just a little bit about what Buffalo DSA has been up to in uh, in general. But I mean, first, uh, you know, like how like how did this uh, you know how did this happen? I mean, this is I mean, this is this is great, but you know, but from you know our perspective outside of Buffalo, it seems to kind of come out of nowhere. Yeah, no, uh, it definitely took all of us by surprise as well. Um, I think there's part of it is an element of they kind of, you know, got caught with their pants down or they were kind of asleep at the wheel. Um, I don't think a lot of them, um, I think the establishment didn't take her very seriously. Um, and I think Byron Brown was in uh, an interesting position because he tried very hard not to draw attention to the race. Um, he like famously refused to debate her, you know, despite multiple requests to debate her. Um, even in his, in his negative ads, he didn't mention her by name. Um, so he tried very hard to kind of, you know, keep the attention down. Uh, whereas, you know, we were doing everything we could to, you know, drive the media cycle, talk to people. Um, mm. So, so that was kind of the basic dynamics. Um, and now, of course, that she's won, you know, they're they're kind of spinning. So Ben, I don't know if you uh, heard the recent uh, news uh, about this election. Um, yeah, I, I think I think we actually have a clip of this. Kale, do you uh, do you have this? Since primary election night, June 22nd, there has been an incredible reaction in the community. I have stayed out of the public spotlight for a few days because I wanted to hear from the people of Buffalo. And the people of Buffalo are speaking loudly and clearly. I have literally heard from thousands of residents of Buffalo who have said to me that we, they want me to continue my campaign for re-election as mayor of the city of Buffalo as a write-in candidate. Yeah, well, with any luck, uh, the people who contacted him are the only people who are going uh, to write him in. Uh, but... Uh, but yeah, this is uh, and parts we didn't play. It gets it gets much weirder, you know. He he talks. Um, yeah, you're muted, Ryan. But he uh, he talks about how it's um, you know like how dangerous and horrible it's going to be to have this radical socialist uh, who's who's in the uh, the mayor's office. Uh, so uh, just 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 really quickly, I mean, like like do you do you run down like some of the basic things that uh, she was running on? Yeah. Um, so. I think her first uh, was three primary points. So she came out to us in September of 2020, um, right after the summer, um, asked for a questionnaire to come through. And her main policy points uh, were on public health, housing, and fiscal accountability. Um, interesting. I mean, even after the summer of 2020, she also didn't interestingly like go straight for a abolish police line in terms of like running a campaign. It was more about accountability and then like a positive program for, in order to actually get that through, um, which I think uh, factored in very well, because also if, if you know, notice, I think the sheriff's race, we had three sheriffs on the run. There was a um, activist from the summer who ran for sheriff. And in that same regard, uh, he got about 10% of the vote while the moderate candidate um, won. So 
I also think that she came through with a very leveled and pragmatic approach to like how to win. And what Buffalo is, is like a very conservative area um, with a very entrenched Democratic Party. So that was a huge, I think, point of like being able to win in this district, uh, that she had a very pragmatic campaign and that she didn't go into hyperbole. Um, I think that was one of the greatest sellers um, on her campaign, at least. Um, but also like in the police angle, that is like one of her focuses is just to uh, A, having a jobs program for youth. Um, so being able to fund into like community services as a, as a factor of like, you know, Buffalo is currently on record uh, going into its most violent year um, as it is with 50 people killed in the city of Buffalo just this year. And there, you know, there has to be some sort of solution and it's clearly not what's been coming out of the past year under Brown's administration. And I think that shows, um, and she has a lot more opportunity to actually push this forward, but the race is not over yet. Yeah. Right. Since, uh, since he is, uh, the Republicans, uh, weren't even actually aren't even running somebody right there. They're just, I guess at this point, supporting Byron Brown as a uh, writing candidate. Yeah. Yeah. The Republicans made a strategic decision. So there's a very competitive race for the Erie County Sheriff. Uh, and Erie County is the county that Buffalo, the city of Buffalo is in. So the Republicans made a decision not to run a candidate in the Buffalo mayoral election, kind of knowing that it was going to be very steep odds anyways, and hoping to kind of keep the Buffalo dorm, uh, voters dormant um, so that they wouldn't come out for that uh, sheriff's race in Erie County, which is much more competitive, you know, a lot more um, conservative than the city of Buffalo. So they weren't even running a candidate. And that's why kind of the only option at this point for anything anti-India is uh, for Brown to, uh, Mayor Brown to write a writing campaign or to launch a writing campaign. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, do you, I mean, I guess, I guess just real quickly, I mean, like, do you, do you think he actually has a, uh, has a shot in, uh, in doing this? He, he definitely has about 100% name ID. I mean, you know, a writing campaign is always going to be tough, uh, because you got to, you know, get people to take that extra step. Um, so yeah, no, I, I, I do think he has a, a shot for sure. I mean, um, you know, if I didn't know how well India's uh, ground game was and what a great organization she had around her, I'd, I'd say it's a better shot. But we uh, we're definitely not going to be um, uh, underestimating them for sure. Yeah, I, I should I should also say some of the other things I've seen uh, that you know that India Walton has has talked about are um, you know trying to you know have more protections for you know for tenants facing eviction. Uh, you know, encouraging uh, encouraging cooperatives, uh, having, uh, and even though she's, uh, I, I think for probably good tactical instincts, shied away from the, uh, the the defund slogan, has talked about you know about some of the same kinds of all, you know reallocations that people are often talking about when they talk about defund police, and also having ways that you know that like the first call in a mental health situation isn't to an armed cop who might kill someone. Uh, so, so, I mean, these are all, I think, exciting things, uh, real quick before you guys go, uh, do you, uh, you know, you want to just, just talk a little bit about beyond the India Walton campaign, like what the, um, you know, Buffalo DSA has been up to and like what you've, you know, you've found most effective there? Yeah, I think, um, one of the things that we're working on in a chapter is trying to get us outwardly directed. So a lot of like chapters might focus a little bit inwardly about um, certain uh, issues, but one of the things that we've tried to be focusing on is to do external organizing. So in the fall, we moved toward working on the tax to rich campaign by partnering with New York City DSA. 
um, to short the budget gap that was about 15 billion. And Cuomo was talking about like making up 4 billion of that. Um, moving on from that, once, once the budget process was over, uh, the New York Health Act had majority support in both state and um, state Senate and state assembly. And clear, easy, you know, kind of stakes for that. But we saw just how rigid they are in terms of being able to pass something that we know on paper has majority support. But if there was ever a time to force the vote, I mean, like, that was it. Yeah, right. And so focusing on easy wins like that, that are by virtue something that would be, you know, a majority of working class win have been most of our focus in the past year. And going into this with also Indies win, I think that the opportunities that this gives us this chapter uh, is a whole game changer as well. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think, yeah, this, this all sounds like really good work. Uh, does, uh, you know, it doesn't sound like the, uh, the kind of DSA setting where you're not allowed to clap at a meeting, you know, it's, it's, it sounds, uh, uh, sounds like you guys are doing really good stuff. Uh, thank you so much for coming on to talk about it. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks guys. All right. Uh, so, uh, before, uh, we bring on, uh, the, uh, uh, great uh, Jason Miles and the equally great Anna Kasparian. Uh, I want to uh, play a quick preview for the episode that is dropping uh, on uh, Thursday for uh, patrons, uh, which is uh, my conversation uh, with uh, uh, Roberto uh, Asfalm about an article that uh, that he, he co-wrote with our friend and comrade Cedric Johnson uh, a little while back about uh, the what the NFL has been up to that's, that's come out in law lawsuits and how it relates to, to bigger issues about, you know, racism and racial essentialism. So let's, let's just uh, play that really quickly and then we'll bring on Jason and Anna. I mean, you, you want to uh, start off with just taking us through like what, it, you know, what it is that they were actually doing that was, you know, at the time you wrote the article, this was alleged in a lawsuit and now they they've admitted it and said they'll stop. Yeah, absolutely. So um, this first came to um, my attention and Cedric's attention back in maybe August uh, of last year. And there was a, an article, I think it was in the New York Times or um, another, uh, maybe the, the Washington Post or one of those papers um, that reported on the lawsuits, right, that were filed by Najee Davenport and Kevin Henry um, in uh, U.S. District Court in Philadelphia, uh, and they were alleging, right, that the NFL was using um, different scoring scales or benchmarks for evaluating neurocognitive functioning among uh, former NFL players, and and as they pertain to um, claims for uh, traumatic brain injuries, right, and, and potential recompense for um, any any potential injuries that that were suffered during um, people's playing years. So, um, and my my dad had actually initially, uh, you know, told me about the article, and he and he was like, "Did you see this?" Right, and I and I was like, "I hadn't seen it," and I was like, "Holy smokes!" Right, like this was to me some and, and to Cedric some pretty um, appalling stuff. Right, and then to your point, right, like. Okay, this had been going on for years at this point, like many years at this point. And so how did the NFL get away with this? What was going on? And so um, Cedric and I thought it was a good kind of entry point 
for discussing and thinking through um, some of these issues pertaining to race, racism, exploitation, and inequality um, that, that are obviously, you know, paramount issues um, in, in both the public discourse and, and as they pertain to people's, people's actual lives, right? All right, so uh, you can watch the entire uh, interview or listen to this podcast on Thursday if you go to patreon.com slash Ben Burgess. And of course, uh, also support all of the work uh, that uh, that we do here. Uh, and uh, you also get access to uh, the post games on uh, on Monday nights, uh, the uh, the month early access to uh, the monthly uh, Sopranos bonus episodes of Nando Vila, uh, Wasni Lambre, uh, and uh, and Mike Racine, um, the uh, D- Discord, uh, Discord office hours, group voice chats, uh, Discord movie nights. We're going to do one uh, tomorrow night, actually. Uh, so, uh, again, head over patreon.com slash, uh, uh, slash Ben Burgess, uh, as, uh, as someone else uh, put it in uh, similar situations. You know, don't be foolish. So, in any case, uh, I am uh, going to, uh, to bring on... Anna Kasparian and uh, Jason Miles. Hey guys. Hey, what's up? All right, Jason, you are muted. I totally muted myself earlier. Sorry. <laughs> All right, this this nice uh, this is you, uh, uh, Anna. Hey, Jason. Nice to meet you. So, um. Yeah. So uh, one thing uh, that uh, that I, I thought it might be uh, be fun to uh, to start with is that last week uh, there was uh, somebody in uh, uh, in the chat. I don't know if this was like fallout from a you know what a debate that I'd done with a libertarian and somebody you know somebody found us here or what it was, but uh, uh, somebody uh, somebody in the chat was uh, was was really pushing uh, this idea, and I and I said we'd. Um, uh, we talk about it in the post game, and then we just didn't end up having having time. And uh, and I thought, hey, Jason Miles is going to be here. We've uh, we've talked about uh, police issues a bunch in the past, uh, so I'll get uh, get Jason's take on it because uh, you know, and also Anna's because because uh, we didn't uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about it before. You want you want to bring this up after we just had a three hour show Saturday yelling at the people watching about shit like this? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, the, uh, so. This this person, uh, what they uh, they were promoting is the idea that look, um, you know, policing is is a service, it's security, and and people don't, um, you know, police you know mistreat people because they're not you know they're not customers because they're being paid by the government. So if sure. uh, if police are uh, are privatized, then of course they wouldn't treat their customers in this way. So we wouldn't have police violence and uh, and and brutality. And you know, I mean, I couldn't see any problems with that. That seemed right to me. But I, I, I just have you been to Iraq or any other place where there's more like uh, private security than there is actual uh, U.S. military troops. Yeah. So, so how does how does that go? Do they, um, you know, they, they they treat people really nicely in Iraq? I can only tell you a real story. I mean, there's other people that that you we know personally that actually have have been there and actually dealt with those cats. Um, I actually, when I went to work in North Dakota in a housing facility for oil field workers. I'm not going to call it a man camp. It was a housing facility for oil field workers. Uh, one of the guys that worked there actually was former Blackwater and he had hit an IUD and lost 
uh, part of his leg. Or, I know he was all effed up. And, um, you know, when you work overseas, you have to stay for so long so you don't get hit with the taxes. And he was literally working in the middle of nowhere. You know, Williston, North Dakota is nowhere just to pay off uh, the taxes that he owed because he had to come back before his his uh, term was up. He was not the nicest person. We did have uh, one brown fellow uh, that was Iraqi there and he wasn't the uh, nicest person to him. Um, I, I can't say how he was when he was there in Iraq. Um, but that's kind of a silly uh, notion to think that just because you're a private security that you would be nicer because you have some sort of point system for your job. That yeah, that's like a bad Uber driver, right? I mean, that's they'll be fine. It's like uh, it's like Dave Rubin's thing about how Yelp reviews can replace regulations. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've seen how that's worked out in Texas with their deregulated and privatized power grid. We've seen how that's played out um, in Florida recently with that insanely tragic story with the 13-story building uh, collapsing because they do inspections every 40 years. I mean, it's just the argument that private security would somehow be better than public like publicly funded policing I, the problem isn't where the funding comes from the problem is that the police that we have now are not actually providing protection to the very people that they purportedly you know are supposed to protect um they do the opposite uh in case after case, what we see is they swarm in and do what's necessary to protect moneyed interests or capital. I mean, Wall Street, um, Occupy Wall Street is a perfect example of that. I mean, as soon as Occupy Wall Street started, the uh, New York Police Department received tens of millions of dollars in donations from J.P. Morgan Chase. Gee, I wonder why that is. So it's just I think I think that's the real issue at hand. I think everyone wants to live in a safe community. They want police to actually protect them, not brutalize them. Yeah, I mean, and, and, I, and I should say, like, like being serious about this for a second, uh, I wrote an article last year for Arc Digital Media uh, called uh, The Problem with Libertarian Solutions to Police Violence, uh, where this, this is the basic point, is that, look, the problem with police as they exist now is that uh, you know most of the population has very little control over over what they do? There's this massive power imbalance. Uh, they you know most you know most people don't have like meaningful recourse. Uh, you know the uh, the police uh, police mistreat them. There's there's very little democratic accountability, uh, and so and of course yes, as you say, and I mean they 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 are. Uh, way more responsive to J.P. Morgan Chase than to like ordinary people who might be in the streets for Occupy Wall Street. But you know what? The one thing that would make that much much worse is not having the police be at least theoretically owned by by the public. Uh, so uh, you know that uh, some sort of entity that we have some kind of extremely imperfect level of democratic control over. But having them literally just be employed by J.P. Morgan Chase, which is what privatized police is. I mean, look at the history of like the Pinkertons, you know, in the 19th century, you know, when they're like literally killing people uh, because uh, their their paychecks, you know, weren't being signed certainly by like striking mine workers, you know, or, any, or anybody like that, but like literally by the company. 
there's several examples. I mean, the prison system is a perfect example because there are definitely are prisons that are run with private um, guards uh, that aren't federal employees. And those are the prisons where you usually see people with cell phones. And, you know, again, heard some awesome stories about some of these federal prisons that are run uh, privately. And uh, a guy that I, I had met uh, in, in touring, he was a promoter that had did some time. Not shocking for a promoter, as you know. Anna, you are a California native as my, as, as I, <laughs> uh, uh, so he uh, was telling us a funny story about how he was in this one prison where the guards kind of didn't give a shit cause they were making like $10 an hour. So all the dudes, um, would be taking selfies outside of the bars with their, with these cell phones that they had snuck in, which is contraband. You can't have cell phones in there. Right. But they didn't give a shit because they were paid like, you know, $10, $15 an hour. And also the, the treatment that you get. And, you know, we can have a whole other discussion about prison guards and treatment. But um, and also where I worked for a uh, uh, Operation Room Key Shelter. Uh, originally, they wanted to have police out front of the shelter. And that was very costly. So instead, uh, we had private security. And, you know, one aspect that uh, this person isn't looking at is the exploitation of the people that you get when it comes to private security. Um, we originally had a bunch of kids. Um, I stressed kids. I mean, like 19, 20 year old kids. Um, then they all left because a lot of them had worked at Tesla. And when Elon Musk opened early, they all left because Elon Musk promised them an extra couple bucks. Um, and then we got quite a few guys uh, that were working upwards of 20 plus hours a day and seven days a week. Jesus. And no one was yeah. reporting this to the county that these guys were working that hard and that long. So the exploitation that you get when you talk about private anything is i mean we can if, if you want to have a conversation about this again i could just tell you about working at the shelter alone um because so much of this is privatized or and funded with with federal dollars from the nonprofit organizations that run it that don't care about the violence inside to the security guards that are extremely overworked under equipped um i mean it's a it's a problem so I don't see how someone would, would think like th that's one of those galaxy brain ideas you have when you just hate the idea because you have it in your head from watching these Dennis Prager videos like you showed earlier on that socialism <laughs> is that comes from like magic yeah. money in the sky. And that magic money in the sky is always your your wallet. And a lot of that comes from like old Reagan era welfare queen uh uh, BS. So, I mean, that's my yeah. I mean, anytime you introduce a profit motive to any part of society, right? Any type of service that uh, people need, what are companies going to do? I mean, their only objective is to make a profit, and so the only way they can do that is to cut the costs of what they're doing to increase their profits. So, are they going to hire the best? 
people to work for them and pay them well. Of course not. They're going to overwork their workers. They're going to pay them very little. Um, and they're going to find ways to cut corners in order to maximize their profits. Like it's such a terrible idea to think that moving toward private security is, is somehow a real solution to what we're experiencing right now. The problem isn't that police are funded through taxpayer money. The problem is that police, first of all, there's like very little accountability. Communities have very little say in regard to the hiring practices and the qualifications that cops need to have. And I think the biggest issue actually is that local police departments are operating as if they don't work for the communities that pay them, right? Like right now in Ohio, they're trying to pass a like a piece of legislation that prevents people from being able to film the cops as they're engaging in policing in public. But no, I mean, there's supposed to be accountability and transparency when, you know, taxpayer money is involved, when public funding is involved. I mean, people forget they work for us. We don't work for them. <laughs> so they should be held accountable. Um, so I think like the culture is what needs to change, not the funding mechanism. Yeah. And I mean, you should also like, hey, at least with like yeah, health insurance, like if this like a priori argument that uh, that if something's private, then they'll see everybody as customers and, and you know, they, they, they won't be they won't be like abusive and oppressive, you know, to uh, to customers like if that worked, that should be at least as true there. Right. Because uh, in fact, it should be more true there, because likely if we lived in some sort of Mad Max hellscape where all the police were private, uh, most of us would not be employers of police, you know, because we couldn't afford it. Uh, whereas uh, it's not like we'd all have our own individual cop, you know, following us around as a uh, as a bodyguard, you know, be they'd be employed by wealthy people. Whereas health insurance, at least if you're lucky enough to you know to to have it, you know, is is something that uh, that you know we all are customers for. Uh, but uh, but strangely, that doesn't seem to stop them from acting abusively towards those customers and trying very hard not to save their lives if they can possibly get away with it. It's RoboCop. I mean, the guy has basically never seen RoboCop. Or that's, that's, that's the, RoboCop. the person the person pushing this should uh, should see RoboCop. But, that's yeah. RoboCop. Like I, I said on the show uh, before we broke down the movie RoboCop and, and Anna, I don't know if you've seen a RoboCop. I know Ben and I are, are old. Um, and I'm even it's older. been a while since I've seen it, but I have seen that movie. Yes, it, it's if you go back and watch it for, with this lens, right? Because now you're you're an adult. It's kind of a how to introduction to neoliberalism. A city is overrun with crime and they're going to get rid of these cops with robotic cops. And uh, these robotic cops don't take breaks and they don't want benefits. I believe that's like a line in the early on in the movie that they don't want benefits. So I think everybody kind of wants uh, the guy wants RoboCop, but forgets how that movie starts off in the boardroom with dude getting shot up by the uh, the big robot that I can't remember the name of it. If you remember the name of it, Ben. No, I, I, I don't. But I, I do remember having the same thought that I mean, like watching RoboCop now. I mean, that that is like uh, the way that they're bragging at the company meeting at the beginning that they've. Uh, that they're offering services and all sorts of things that nobody ever thought that a com private company could do, and you know, entering into uh, to all of these uh, these these new areas. I mean, it's it's. I mean, it is like basically you know, '90s and you know, 2000s and 2010s. You know, uh, you know, neoliberalism 
uh, you know, right down to what's happened to the city of, uh, of Detroit uh, in, uh, in that time period, um, which is also, you know, like that same kind of level of, of suffering and, you know, post-industrial decay, you know, uh, has, uh, has gone on uh, all over the place. And I think is the, the backdrop to uh, the victory that we were talking about earlier, uh, which, which, which is like, I don't know. I mean, like, like I know a lot of people like seem to be very jaded about this and, and they've kind of decided in advance that's not a big deal, but that still seems like a very, very big deal to me uh, that a, uh, that somebody who, calls yourself a socialist and certainly running on, on stuff that goes like way beyond what like a normal sort of progressive-ish democratic candidate, you know, was, was running on is actually going to be the mayor of a city as big as Buffalo. Well, is it going to be, is it going to be kind of cooperation Jackson-esque like uh, Chuck Way Lumumba in Jackson, Mississippi? Um, or is it going to be kind of socialist in name only? Um, well, I mean, we'll, we'll see. And, and, I, and I say that because I think a lot of people that love the reactionary, uh, what do we call it, AOC discourse. Yeah, people. You're people not, are, you're not leftist are. enough. You're not far left enough because yeah. you're yeah. in electoral politics. You're not left enough because you said vote. Like uh, the, the the issue that we got into in the show is that we we had um, speaking of police violence, we had Flint Taylor on the show who was. Fred Hampton's lawyer. He was a lawyer for. Uh, he's actually the lawyer in the, in the hog tie case that's going on right now in North Carolina, where the police who weren't supposed to hog tie anyone hog tied a man who was literally asking for help, and then he died. Jesus. Um, yeah. And we were talking about. Uh, I was with a friend that actually I think all of us know. I'll I'll leave his name out of this, uh, and talking about kind of how the left has no real infrastructure because people just aren't interested in infrastructure and the right has infrastructure. When I say infrastructure, I mean like there's people on the right that are going to become uh, district court judges, Supreme court judges. They're going to be sheriffs. They're going to be chiefs of police. They're going to be aldermen's. And we're still fighting over, you know, it, is voting worth nonsense it? Is, yeah is electoral politics worth it and, and it's all of it right you need to have a movement and what was so interesting to me about following the uh the things going on in jackson mississippi with cooperation jackson it's not just a mayor and then everybody waits for him to do shit stuff sorry curse uh okay, it's a, do that. An entire it's an entire movement and he's part of it and they understand that they only get so much done when when you're also constantly fighting a major pushback. Like it's, I love what the Debt Collective is doing out of Southern California. It's it's amazing. They've been on the show multiple times. Love those dudes. But imagine if they actually did have help in office. Yeah. No. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, I. I yeah. I'm really glad. I'm so happy that you're talking about this right now, because this is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately for obvious reasons. I mean, the infighting is just out of control and insane. And the infighting is on, you know, incredibly like dumb, irrelevant stuff. And, you know, especially when it comes to electoral politics, which, you know, I certainly agree that electoral politics is not the end all be all. However, it is 
one avenue in which we need to be paying attention and we need to vote strategically. Um, and so uh, an example that I gave on weekends for, for Jacobin was, you know, the Supreme Court for all of the negative attention this conservative Supreme Court has gotten in regard to potential terrible rulings on social issues actually is not going to rule terribly on social issues. They just uh, decided not to take up a case regarding, um, you know, a transgender student allowing a lowercase ruling um, that voted in favor of the transgender student to stand. Um, they've actually been pretty good, even though they're conservative judges on these social issues. The problem with this Supreme Court is that on corporate issues, they will consistently vote against the American people and the American worker. So there were two awful rulings just recently, one of which, by the way, reversed the gains made by uh, Cesar Chavez in California in regard to organizing among farmers. Uh, basically, uh, the courts ruled that uh, since the uh, organizers for unions would be coming onto the private property of farmers or the farm owner, um, that violates the private property. And as a result, they're not allowed to do that. So it's going to be even more difficult now for farmers to be able to organize because the union representatives won't be able to show up to the farm and help them organize. That was one bad ruling. The other terrible ruling by the Supreme Court recently was that um, there were these six individuals who had been trafficked into the cocoa trade in Africa. Um, I forget which country they were from, but they were forced Every into the cocoa trade. They, Yeah, they were from other um, African countries, but they were forced into the Ivory Coast to do the, uh, the cocoa trade. And so they wanted to sue Nestle um, because Nestle is profiting from that, right? And all of the financial decisions are made in the United States. It's a US-based company. And the Supreme Court is like, mm, this human trafficking, child trafficking, isn't happening in the United States. So as a result, uh, we are not going to hold uh, Nestle accountable. We're not going to allow this lawsuit to move forward. I give you guys those two examples because strategic voting matters. Anyone who said, oh, who cares if it's uh, Donald Trump instead of Hillary Clinton? Who cares? It's not a big deal. It's just the Supreme Court. No, it matters because conservatives are smart and strategic and they build and accumulate power, um, honestly, very effectively. Whereas the left is like, ah, oh, you voted for Hillary Clinton or you voted for Biden. You're not left enough. I mean, it's just childish. It's foolishness. I can't we were, stand it. So we were having an argument before I came on. I'll be, I'll be totally honest. I was a little nervous. There's some stuff going on in my house. And I, and I have a big Adolph Reed's coming on tomorrow, Ben. And I got to get ready for that. That's always a hoot. And, uh, and I knew I was doing this show and I was like, shit. I don't know what Ben wants to talk about and I'm kind of nervous. I don't want to come on here looking like a boob. Like I don't know anything. And, uh, we were having this argument out of nowhere, me, Pascal and Jean Bajlan about Donald Trump. And it is a silly argument, right? Um, uh, and it's funny that you say that because a lot of these arguments are really silly when it comes to voting, but there's one thing Pascal had said that I thought was very interesting that Donald Trump pushed through like 200, judges while he was in office again that's power that's a power structure that cats don't really understand because they just don't get it a lot of people we have to be honest with the fact that a lot of people got radicalized either in 2016 or this past election so 
there's a lot to this shit. It's, it's easy to put on a shirt with a hammer and a sickle and say I'm a I'm a ML or I'm a this or I'm a that. It's hard to truly understand power. Yeah, right. I mean, I, and the things that uh, like like that all of the discussion about that was 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 so superficial and and it's and it's bound up with this like moralizing like if you vote for somebody because um elections are about comparative choices and you know that one of them is going to win you know that like that's like a moral endorsement of uh of of everything you know of everything about that right which which is uh which is dumb right i mean i've i've, I've always adolf reed uh had a uh, you know had a great article in uh, in 2016 uh, called "Vote for the Line Neoliberal Warmonger." It's important, uh, which uh, you know is, is kind of self-evident. What the uh, what you know what Adolf's argument was in uh, in, in that uh, in that article, uh, but uh, but also because yeah, I mean all of the um, so much of the argument about that election was about like whatever sort of grabbing the headlines, uh, which is not necessarily the stuff that was actually most dangerous about Trump. A lot of which. I mean, you know, Trump had a really flashy personality, but a lot of it was the stuff that was most dangerous about Trump would be have also been like dangerous about like Mitt Romney or or whoever, right? You know that they're going to appoint these god awful Federalist Society ghouls, you know, to all these all these judicial positions. They're going to appoint people like John Bolton, you know, to foreign policy positions. They're going to appoint hardcore union busters to uh, to the National uh, Labor Relations Board. Uh, and and I guess this this also does go back. I want to switch gears in just a second, but I mean this does go back to what you're saying about uh, about Buffalo. Since I mean, so Cooperation Jackson, people aren't familiar with it, you know, look it up, right? It's it's a good uh, you know it's 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 a good model in many ways, you know, and and there are aspects of what India Walton has, has talked about that that do sort of uh, hearken to that. Like even in her victory speech, she talks about. Uh, having more cooperatives and you know things like that, but uh, but of course that's something that you get because you have a movement, right? You know, not just like individuals here and there and this or that office. Uh, but I mean, my my big pitch on this is that part of the importance of it is that if people see like somebody like India Walton winning an election in, in like a real city, you know, like 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 Buffalo, like that uh, inspires people to run for all kinds of other things and think they could actually win, you know, all those other offices that you're mentioning, you know, Jason. And I mean, that itself, um, like, I think that itself could be huge, right? I mean, like, even if like you have the most pessimistic projections about what you can do for the mayor's office or what kind of pressures, you know, should be under, I mean, I think that itself makes it, uh, you know, makes Chase it Boudin in San Francisco is a great example, right? Uh, here you have a guy who, his dad was a weatherman, dude. Right? His, his dad, he's only known his dad from behind bars, po- committing crazy political crimes. He becomes a public defender, and then runs for district attorney of San Francisco, major metropolitan area. Wins. First thing he does is kick out cats that were way too cool with police violence. Wants to get rid of cash bail and is doing it, letting some people out of jail that's been sitting in there too long for, for silly shit. So there's some power there, but he's kind of a man alone as well, because also when you're this far left and this far radical, you're not going to get the media attention. Shahid Buttar is a great example of that. Here you have a dude running in San Francisco against not just the most recognizable congressperson before the uh cult of personality that you know you could say aoc and i don't say that in a bad way i just mean that you know she kind of has has 
taken up a lot of oxygen in the, in the internet and, and uh, media sphere. But Nancy Pelosi, name brand recognition, extremely powerful. You're not just taking on Nancy Pelosi, as the great Michael Brooks said it uh, in a video that we're both in, by the way. You're taking on the entire Democratic Party establishment when you're taking on someone like that. And you look at what happened you, with Ukraine. Yeah, no, I was just going to say that. I mean, yes, exactly. I mean, you know that you're taking on the Democratic Party establishment when uh, the first real attack you get has to do with unsubstantiated claims of like sexual misconduct. Yes. Um, it's just I've seen it happen over and over again. Um, it, it, you know, it's just anyway. And also like. The corporate Democrats are really good at weaponizing identity. It's not just that they engage in identity politics. It's that they weaponize identity and they weaponize um, very legitimate cultural movements, right? So like Me Too started off as something genuine and important, and then they found a way to use it to their advantage as like a campaigning tool to immediately shoot down anyone who challenges their power. And... Shahid Buttar certainly did that. Yeah, I mean, he's a really personal yeah. friend. Actually, Ben is in that video as well. <laughs> that that yeah, yeah. I, I, I was at the uh, the guy who who filmed it was on uh, TM. He was like sitting on the couch like a night I was on on TMBS to uh, to to film Michael Ford after and and then like we were like. I, th I think we're all at a bar later. He's like, "Hey, you want to you want to go outside? And, like, do like a minute, you know, for uh, for the video." So, uh, so that that's why I'm randomly in the uh, San Francisco congressional campaign ad. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, right. Uh, and and this is actually uh, this is actually a really good uh, good transition because because I wanted to do this uh, before we and I and I hope you can both stick around for a few minutes of the post game. But I have, um, but before we finish the main show, I, I did want to do this because there was a. Uh, there's a, a bit that you did on weekends a little while back, uh, Anna, where, where you're talking about the exact thing uh, that you uh, that you just mentioned. Uh, uh, and and I think in particular, the way that uh, establishment Democrats have weaponized uh, the, you know, the cultural stuff and, and what that sort of leaves them with, you know, uh, you know politically. Uh, Kale, do we uh, do we have the clip? James Carville, a longtime political strategist with a knack for defending the Democratic Party's shift to neoliberalism, now has a problem with what neoliberalism has reduced the party to. In an interview with Vox, Carville offered a pretty salty rejection of woke culture. And he even argued that Biden's biggest attribute is that he's not into faculty lounge politics. They come up with a word like Latinx that no one else uses. Now, I think that the example of the word Latinx is perfect to describe uh, the problem with woke culture. Essentially, people coming in and deciding to change an entire language uh, based on identity-related politics, even when the very people who speak that language never asked for it. But he goes on to say that as a result, large parts of the country view Democrats as an urban, coastal, arrogant party, and a lot gets passed through that filter. That's a real thing. I don't give a damn what anyone thinks about it. It's a real phenomenon and it's damaging to the party brand. 
And to be clear, he's right about that. You know, on the surface, when you read these statements, it's, it's hard to disagree with him. Carville, in fact, even brings up the same jarring examples of class dealignment that the social socialist left is concerned about, mentioning how in 2018 in Florida, giving felons the right to vote got 64%. In 2020, a $15 an hour minimum wage. Has anyone in the Democratic Party said, maybe there's nothing wrong with the state of Florida? Maybe the problem is the kind of campaigns we're running. Now, again, Carville has a point, but he seems to be oblivious to class D-alignment in the first place. Uh, he obviously feels like there's something afoot, there's something wrong, but he can't really put his finger on it. And he really just boils it down to language and messaging. But there's more to it than that. In fact, his own class interests stop him from considering the severity of the problem and limit him to critiques of unpopular slogans and finger wagging by PC enforcers. If Carville really stopped to ask himself what the Democratic establishment would campaign on in the absence of woke posturing, what would it be? What would their sincere politics be? What would their message be? How would they appeal to voters? And how did the party get to where it is today? Much like establishment Republicans who intentionally base their politics on culture and nonsense, like Mr. Potato Head, to avoid having substantive discussions about inequalities, the Democratic Party has latched onto its own version of the culture war. Yep. <laughs> That that girl knows what she's talking about. <laughs> she does. I was like, oh no, I hate watching myself. So when you said you were going to play a clip of me, I'm like, oh no. But you no, I, agree. I still agree with everything I said there. You should, you should never be ashamed. We were talking about you the other day and Ben Dixon because y'all have the best lighting. Oh, That's thank it. you. <laughs> I'm like, damn, man, they got killer lighting. Me and Ben out here looking like night trolls. And you guys got bomb ass lighting. Fair enough. Um, so, uh, you know, what you're saying in the in the clip, uh, I mean, the, the good lighting notwithstanding, you know, like the uh, the, the the actual content of it, uh, like like th this is like this is really striking. I mean, I remember having that same thought when I first first saw the uh, the Carville uh, thing that like, OK, 99 percent of what he's saying is just obviously true, but it's also hilarious that he's saying it. Because, like, how did these guys get like that? Like, 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 how does he think this happened? It's, uh, it's because any like sort of emptying out of like never mind like real social democracy anything like that, but like, but even like sort of pre Clinton, you know, left liberalism, uh, like that, like the the complete emptying out of uh, of of that and the uh, the the embrace. Of, of, of austerity and, you know, and, and, and just like, you know, market-based, you know, uh, so, you know, solutions and all of this garbage, you know, by the democratic party establishment. Yeah. I mean, if they don't have their side of the culture war, what do they have? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, what do they campaign on? Because when you really focus on their messaging and campaigns, what they, I mean, it's on one hand, they do at least identify the inequalities in the country, um, you know, whether it's racially, somewhat economically, but they tend to stay away from that kind of messaging. And it's all hollow, right? It's all to say we're 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 the more 
moral party, right? Like we're the ones who recognize that these inequalities exist, right? Uh, and, and they'll look, I mean, perfect example. What was the democratic messaging in regard to Donald Trump's treatment of asylum seekers at the border? And now you look at how asylum seekers are being treated right now under the Biden administration. Honestly, there's virtually no difference. And what both Democrats and Republicans tend to do, and I think it's just crystal clear at this point, is they want to find something else to campaign on because neither party wants to actually do anything that materially improves Americans' lives, right? I mean, uh, I think Republicans are more brazen about that, but Democrats will try to like deflect from any conversation regarding you know, true structural changes that need to be made in our country in order to actually root out inequality. And so instead they'll pretend, and I say pretend because their actions prove it, they'll pretend to care about racism. They'll pretend to care about sexism. They'll pretend to care about all sorts of things that when, in reality, when push comes to shove, they actually don't do what's necessary to improve people's lives. I mean, the $15 an hour minimum wage is a perfect example of that, right? They purport to care about the African-American community. Well, black women are overrepresented in minimum wage jobs. So an easy way to materially improve their lives is to push through a at this point, honestly, $15 an hour, it's not even enough um, in regard to like how much the cost of living is in much of the country. But even that, like just increasing the minimum wage from $7.25 to $15 an hour, really does improve the lives of, of black women, right? But it's also a universal program or universal policy that would affect anyone who's working a minimum wage job, right? But they, you know, they'll anytime they have an opportunity to do the right thing and actually provide something materially, they don't do it. That's yeah, why I don't believe anything the Democratic Party says about like how they care about rooting out racism. And you can't like you can't pass laws that just punish people, right? Like that doesn't do away with racism. That doesn't, but you can pass laws that that genuinely improve people's lives and livelihoods. And, and they don't and do that because they're funded by the same people. Yeah, those laws are, are incredibly popular. I mean, one of, one of Carville's examples, again, hilarious that he's bringing it up, uh, you know, like considering his, his history and pushing, you know, Clinton's and, you know, neoliberal turn in the Democratic Party. But like, one of his examples, right, that minimum wage referendum in Florida uh, won in Florida and Trump won Florida and the minimum wage law won by more than Trump did. So, I mean, if that doesn't tell you something right there about like what the electoral calculus, you know, would, would be like, you know, running on that, uh, I don't know what would. But I, I'm, I'm glad uh, that you that you brought up um, the border stuff. Uh, because because uh, I, I, I do want to uh, I do want to we have a story about that. Want to start with that at the uh, at the beginning of the uh, the post game, uh, but uh, we're going to have to cut off uh, the main show here. Uh, thank you guys both uh, so very very much. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you. Shout out weekends. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was great. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, uh, watch uh, watch Anna uh, on uh, on weekends uh, on uh, on Jacobin at uh, at one Eastern with uh, with our friend uh, comrade uh, and uh, and and monthly Sopranos uh, recapper Nanda Vila uh, and of course also on on TYT uh, watch Jason uh, on uh, this is Revolution uh, with uh, with Pascal Robert interviewing Adolf Reed tomorrow that's awesome uh, and. Uh, 
Uh, and meanwhile, if you're a patron, watch them both in about 30 seconds. Peace.